Thanks, Adam. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here in New Denver. I'm glad to have you here with us. If you're new, if you're visiting with us, we're in the midst of a series that we've been going through, we're going to be going through all summer called Proverbs Wisdom for Life. And in this series, we're seeking after wisdom. Wisdom is that capacity to be able to look at the challenging or difficult circumstances or decisions that we face in life all the time and to be able to parse through them to make decisions, decisions in line with our deepest values and our deepest beliefs. It's being able to make sense of the information and knowledge which we are just inundated with every single day and to be able to know what to do with it. And our guide for this summer has been this little book from the Old Testament, an ancient collection of writings called the book of Proverbs. Now what we've said is that Proverbs, you can't just go like you would go to a self-help book and read this and see exactly what to do in your life. No, wisdom has to be sought. So we go to Proverbs and we read these ancient writings uh, about circumstances in life that are similar to our own and we still have to ask the question, what does that look like? What does wisdom look like in my life? And so we're trying to make those connections on Sunday when we talk about this, but during the week we've encouraged you to, to take some time to read through the book of Proverbs slowly, contemplatively, reflectively, uh, waiting for those moments when something jumps off the page and there's a connection between what the ancient writers had to say in your own life. And that happened to me a few weeks ago. Um, I've been going through using the little journal that we handed out, reading the book of Proverbs, and then doing some journaling and writing. And there was a verse that just jumped out at me, and I had to sit with it for a while and read it because it just struck me wrong, uh, uh, to be honest, at first. Before I get to the verse, uh, I want to share a little bit about what the, what the verse is about, the context of it, and, and why maybe it, it struck me um, so oddly. Well, the verse is uh, talking about a subject that I think we all need more wisdom about. It's the area of finances, of our wealth, of, of our work, what we do, what we produce. And I, I think this is an area, regardless of where you are in your life, whether you're a student, uh, maybe working part-time, uh, like my son who just got his first job, he's working at Cherry Creek Mall today, as, as a matter of fact. So whether you're there or whether you're smack in the middle of your career, uh, navigating, trying to figure out your job, your, your career, your next step, your next promotion, or maybe you're retired. We all think a lot about money, about wealth, about possessions, about finances. Uh, it occupies a lot of our time. And so it's not surprising that when we go to the Bible, we see a lot written about it because this isn't new. The, the, the concern that we as human beings have for what we work for and produce and create in the world and what the way we create compensation and, and how we provide for ourselves and for our families, that's not a new concern. And so when we go to the pages of the Bible, what we see throughout the Bible from beginning to end is a lot about wisdom, about finances, and about possessions, and about wealth, and about work. And the book of Proverbs is no exception. It's full of great information, great knowledge about finances. And today I want to talk about this verse that jumped off the page at me. Before I do, i got to talk about the context that we come to think about finances. Um, like you, like probably like most of you, I don't know if some of you were born overseas, but I, I was born here in America and grew up here. And it wasn't until much later in my life that I began to realize just how differently uh, we see finances than other places in the world. Um, when we think about America and we think about the, the free market economy that we participate in every day and probably most of us take for granted, um, we can easily miss that this is not the way that it is everywhere. 
the, the conditions that exist to be able to work and produce and generate wealth in America are fairly unique. First of all, we have a very large and plentiful landmass um, that, that, is, that is secured and protective, only Canada to the north and Mexico to the south, but, but we're pretty well protected by oceans. Uh, and it's a very uh, fertile land. We've been able to uh, grow a lot of crops and livestock to provide for ourselves. So that, that's not normal. That's not the way it is everywhere. Every landmass is not as plentiful as America. Um, we have a, a government that, that was hard fought for uh, based on ideals like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, individual freedom. All of those are things that, that our country has just been established on, that, that we're able to then produce on top of. Uh, we have a strong rule of law. Like we have laws that are enforced and protected. So individual rights and freedoms are protected by the law. We have durable property rights. Did you know that it's not normal everywhere that when you buy a piece of property, a house or something, that, that it just stays yours? No one can come and take it from you? There's a rule of law and durable property rights that protect that. That's a unique part of America. And we have free markets opportunities for, for people to be able to create new things, new industries. I looked, you know, there's like 20 different companies in the Fortune 50, the top richest companies in America. The industry that they're in didn't exist 50 years ago. Technology has shifted and changed, and our country has made that possible. Our free market economy has made that possible. And that's not the way it is everywhere. I actually, the first opportunity that I had to see the world was I lived for a year overseas in the former Soviet Union. And seeing the effects of 60 years of communism, how what that had had on not only the systems and the structures of government and finance and economics, but on people's motivation, the way they thought about the world. The world was not an, a level playing field. There, there was not the access to opportunity. You know, me, naive, you know, kid from America, you know, just thought, well, if you, you know, if you work hard and you get an education, you, you can advance yourself. It's, that's not the way it is. In many places, like the former Soviet Union and other places around the world, corruption and other forces stand in the way of opportunity. So there's a lot that is good about our system, a lot that the Bible would actually affirm. Because think about it. I mean, God created the world uh, in abundance. He, he is an infinitely creative God who created everything that we see around us all the time. And his crowning creation, human beings, he put us in this planet and he said, make something of these raw materials. Do something with it. Have dominion. Rule over. Steward. Care for this earth that I've set you in. It's your home. It's also your workplace. And there's abundance. And the opportunity to create and produce is a part of who we were made by God to be. So there's a lot that the Bible affirms about our American story. But the more familiar that you become with the biblical story, and the more familiar you become with the American story, the more that you begin to see that there are conflicts too. There are challenges, problems, tensions that exist between the imperatives of the Bible, the values of the Bible, and the imperatives and the values that drive our American system Forward. At the heart of the biblical imperative is what Jesus referred to as the great commandment. To love God and to love others. He said it all comes down to that. Loving God and loving others is at the heart of what the, the Bible commands for us to do. And this fundamental commitment of our faith raises tensions when we think about our American story and our prosperity and what it costs for us 
to become so prosperous. It creates tensions around violence done to native people who were living in this land when our forefathers came and took it over and took the land from them by force. Those are tensions in our story. Tensions around the wealth that has been produced generationally now uh, from the utilization of slavery, of enslaving other people to be able to create economic benefit and gain for a different set of people. The biblical story creates tensions around inequity of opportunity that has existed from the beginning of our country for women, for minorities, problems that we still wrestle with today. These are tensions that the Bible, the biblical story, the values of loving God and loving other create for us when we think about our American story. But as I think about all of those tensions, I think that there is one driving value underneath all of them, one assumption that is made about wealth and production and finances that just drives the American economy forward. And it's the consumption assumption. It's the assumption that everything that we produce is for us. We made it, it's for us. We work for it, it's ours. Whatever we create is ours to do with what we please. And underneath that is a, is a core value that I don't think any of us would say we aspire to, but it's one that drives forward, I think, the American economy, economy and has led to a lot of the effects and the outcomes, a lot of the tensions that are created with the Bible. To best articulate this, I'm going to turn it over to the patron saint of this value, um, who's a character in the 1987 movie Wall Street. Take a look at this clip. The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Greed is good. Greed works. Greed is right. <clears throat> if you haven't seen the film, uh, Michael Douglas plays a character called Gordon, named Gordon Gecko, who is a corporate raider. And the director, Oliver Stone, created this character as a reflection of what he saw in actual people working in Wall Street in the 1980s, driven by this assumption that they needed to create as much value and wealth as they could for themselves, regardless of the cost. So, so in, the, in the movie, Gecko is kind of this unscrupulous character who's willing to do whatever it takes to make the deal happen, whatever it takes to be able to make more money. 
And while I don't know if there's any connection between, you know, this character and, and, and the effects that we've seen of greed in our economy, it is definitely an indication of art imitating life. So much so that, that Michael Douglas went as an emissary uh, of peace for the United Nations. He was invited to come to the UN General Assembly in 2008. So right in the middle of the Great Recession. And reporters actually asked him, hey, how much impact do you think the celebration of greed in this character has to do with this new generation that's coming forward, that's creating collateralized debt obligations and continuing to recklessly seek seek astronomical gains through the financial markets. The, the children of G Gordon Gecko are growing up to continue to push and, and try to break through in the, uh, in the financial system. Now, I don't know what the connection is between the two, but it, again, it's, it's sort of a case of art imitating life. And when we look at the things that have happened over time, what we see is that there's this push or this impulse. We wouldn't celebrate it. We wouldn't, no one would say greed is something that drives our country forward. But isn't it true? Doesn't it seem like this assumption is just operative? It's the default reaction of the markets and the people who participate in them. And, and most of our, our friends and neighbors who don't think much about what they make, how they make it, what they produce and where their income comes from. It's the consumption assumption. If I made it, it's for me. If, if I earned it, it's for me. It's mine. But when we come to the biblical story, we see a different perspective of wealth and possessions. And the verse I want to take a look at at Proverbs, the one that surfaced this tension, the first half really didn't create any tension at all. It's actually a good summation, a good straightforward summation of the Bible's perspective about wealth and possessions. It says this, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. So in a book focused on wisdom, the writer of this proverb, who was probably King Solomon, uh, a king in Israel who was probably one of the wealthiest men uh, who lived during that time, uh, writes and admonishes the, leader, the reader to first and foremost to honor God with their wealth. So in the second stanza, he gives an indication of how that's done. He says, with the first fruits of all your crops. And the, the Hebrew phrase here, all your crops, it really means all that you produce. So in an agrarian economy, it, it makes sense to translate it all your crops. But what he's saying is everything that you make, everything that you produce, the livestock that you raise, the grain that you raise, the, 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 the vines that you grow, the olive trees, whatever you produce, the first fruits should be given, given to honor God. Now, you have to understand the context in which this was written to be able to understand the reference that the author is making. So how do we honor God with our wealth? Well, it would have been clear to the reader initially that this was a reference uh, to the Mosaic law, to the sacrificial system, the way that Israelites in this time understood their relationship with God through the law that was given by Moses was that they were to do regular sacrifices and offerings as an acknowledgement that it was God who was providing for them. And if you were here for us for the series on Leviticus, I don't have to tell you anything about all that. Norton went through in painstaking detail, all of what that was about, all of what the sacrificial system, this gifting to God as an acknowledgement that God was the one who was providing everything. But when we come into this verse and when we read it, we have to remember that's not our, the nature of our relationship with God. Because Christ came, Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. He came so that we don't have to worry about that. The law actually failed to actually help us to, to grow in connection and relationship with God. Israel was never really able to carry it 
out the terms of the agreement that they had with God. Because sin prevents us from being able to do that. It it exposed that we could not do that for ourselves. So Christ came and died on the cross to be able to fulfill the deeds of the law so that we could have relationship with God without the need to be able to go through all of these mechanisms and following the law and doing the sacrifices and everything else. So when we come to this verse and we read, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, we have to make an interpretive step to say, well, what does this mean for us today? And this is where the New Testament is helpful, where the writings uh, captured about Jesus's life, where, where what he had to say about wealth and possessions, what Paul had to say is very insightful. And what it all comes down to is a similar kind of impulse. It is to be generous with what we are given, to take the first of what we are given. That's what first fruits mean. The first things that you harvest, the first things that you grow, take the first portion of whatever you produce and give it as an acknowledgement that God is the one who is ultimately providing for us. We squelch our inner Gordon Gecko. We squelch that desire to assume that everything we have is for us by giving generously to people, to organizations, to causes in the world that honor God. And this core idea that we honor God with our wealth by being generous is what made the next concept that I read in Proverbs a bit challenging, one that I had to sift through. Look at the next verse immediately following this. Verse 10, Proverbs 3, verse 10. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brib over with new wine. And when I read these verses, it's it's like an if then, right? Like if you honor the the Lord with your wealth, then your, your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats of wine will be filled to overflowing with new wine. And now I start to get very uncomfortable because this is starting to create a a, a weird sort of greed possibility, right? Like, so if I give, then I get even more in return, right? It feels like that's kind of feeding, um, feeding our greed. But if you step back, and again, you think about this in the context of what it was written and the context of the Old Testament law, it's not that surprising because these sorts of verses about God's promise of fruitfulness are all over the Old Testament because it was a part of the agreement with Moses. It was a part of the agreement with the Israelites. As they were faithful to God's covenant law, God promised them that the land would produce for them, that as long as they acknowledged him, they wouldn't have to worry about foreign enemies. They wouldn't have to worry about how their crops grew for those. He was going to take care of them. So there's this repetition of expectation that as we're faithful, then God will be faithful as well. The problem is when we go and we read this under the expectation that, that the same just applies to us word for word, then we make a huge interpretive leap that just isn't true. And it leads us into understanding these verses wrongly. Again, we have to step back and remember, we read these verses as people related to God through Christ. We already have everything that we need in Christ. So there is not the same kind of relationship that existed with God. But the problem is a lot of Christians find these verses and they tell us that that's what's true. That if you just give, if you give a little bit of your money to me as the preacher, then you're going to get a lot more in return. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. And there's a lot of people out there who would tell you this is still true. If you honor God with your wealth, you're going to get a whole lot more 
in return. To, to give you a little taste of what this looks like, I found a clip uh, from the John Oliver show where he talked a little bit about televangelists on his show last week tonight. So take a look at this Only because clip. they preach something called the prosperity gospel, which argues that wealth is a sign of God's favor and donations will result in wealth coming back to you. That, that idea sometimes takes the form of seed faith, the notion that donations are seeds that you will one day get to harvest. Uh, let me show you that in action. The size of your seed will determine the size of your harvest. I don't understand why, but there's something happens at a level where people step into faith and give $1,000 that don't happen at other levels. You're going to have a breakthrough through this $273 seed. All you've got is $1,000. Listen, that's not enough money anyway to buy the house. You're trying to get in the apartment. You're trying to buy the house. That's not enough money anyway. You get to that phone and you put that seed in the ground and watch God work it out. The, the, the argument is, sow your money in the ground and you will reap returns multiple times over. Except, as an investment, you'd be better off burying your money in the actual ground. Because at least that way there is a chance your dog may dig it up and give it back to you one day. Good boy. But... But it can get even more predatory, because if, say, you don't have $1,000 or perhaps have significant credit card debts, seed faith can still work for you. I have a feeling that somebody that wants a credit card debt wiped out, that if you use your faith as you sow, as you sow the 1000 on a credit card, as you use your faith, as you use your faith, God's going to wipe out your credit card indebtedness. Think about that. That is the equivalent of saying the key to you losing weight lies at the bottom of this giant Costco bulk bag of peanut butter M&Ms. Go find it. It's definitely down there. So it's, it's sort of, he's sort of making fun of it, and it's a funny segment, but what these people are doing is not funny at all. Uh, I mean, they are taking verses out of context in Scripture and they're using them to manipulate people, often poor, marginalized people, widows who are sending money to these ministries because they're being told. Did you hear they're using this same sort of agricultural language? Sow a seed and your harvest will be plentiful. Honor God with your wealth and then your barns will overflow. And the problem is that these people have taken these verses out of context and they're just, they're just a different manifestation of Gordon Gecko. They're operating on greed and manipulation just as badly as anyone else. Now you might be thinking, but Stephen, wait a minute. The verses are right there. You just read them to us. They're in the Bible. Isn't the Bible the problem? I mean, that's what it says, right? Yeah, that is what it says. But it's not the only thing the Bible says. This is the problem of lifting something out of the context without understanding the larger story of Scripture, particularly when it comes to understanding the arc of God's story from the people of Israel to the people of the church today and understanding how we make sense of things that we read that were written to people thousands of years ago under a type of relationship with God through a covenant with Moses and the law and what it looks like for us to live connected to God through Christ today. And so when we run into a story like this or a verse like this that just doesn't seem to line up with what maybe what we think or expect, we have to look more broadly and ask, where else does this scripture talk about? Is there somewhere in the New Testament that Jesus talks about this or Paul talks about this or the church addresses this? 
And while I've tried to stay in this series exclusively in Proverbs, to illustrate this point, I want to jump to a verse, to a story that Jesus told that's, that's eerily connected and eerily paralleled with this verse from Proverbs, this promise about overflowing barns. Listen to this story that Jesus told his followers. It comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12. Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Not you wise person, not good thinking, not well done. You fool. This night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says parenthetically, he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Jesus says this is the way of the fool. The way of the fool lives by the, cons- the consumption assumption. They live by the mandate of greed that says, whatever I can earn, whatever I can get, it's for me. And it, it totally misses the point that none of us get to take anything with us. We're all just managers. Everything's just flowing through. Everything we earn, every dollar, every possession that we have, we're not going to take it with us. There's no hearses with trailer hitches. We don't get to take any of that stuff beyond this life. So the question is, what are we doing with what we have been entrusted? Jesus clarifies here and he shows us that greed is actually not good. It's the way of the fool. It's not the way of wisdom. Why? Because none of it is ours anyway. Instead, The way of wisdom is to honor God. How? How do we do that? We don't do sacrifices. We don't bring it to God in in the way that the Israelites did, but we can still give generously to people, to causes, to needs in our world that honor Jesus' command to love God and to love others. And in so doing, we can break the power of greed in our lives. And it's For sure, 100%, not a formula to get rich. That's not the point. When there is excess, when there is more than is needed, the question is not, what am I going to do to spend it on myself? The question is, what is it for? How much of this is for me and how much of this do do I feel a responsibility to give to the things, the people in the world that God cares about? And just to be clear, That doesn't mean that God is against producing a lot or earning a lot. Jesus never says anything about negative about the man's wealth. In fact, he sort of undermines that he had much to do with it. He said the land of a rich man produced an abundant crop. He kind of gave all of the credit to the land. But he never says anything negative about the man producing more. What he says is he was wrong to think that that it was all for him, the consumption assumption, without thinking about what it was for. 
It's, it's easy to, uh, to, to, to begin to think that maybe the Bible has something against rich people. Maybe the Bible has something against people who earn a lot. And, and it would be easy for us to have that same sort of mentality for people in our world at a time when the disparity of income between CEOs and their employees is so great, where income inequality and wealth inequality is so great. But God is not against production. He's against greed. There's nothing inherently wrong with being prosperous. But when you produce, whatever you produce, whether you produce a little or not, whether a lot, whether you earn a little or whether you earn a lot, it's the recognition of that's not mine anyway. I didn't earn it. And you may be saying, well, but wait, I worked for it. I worked hard to get the education that I have. Well, who, who gave you the mind, the capability to think and to see and to understand what you know how to do? Well, but I work hard. I mean, I, I, I do physical work. I, yeah, well, who gave your able-bodiedness? Who gave that to you? It all comes from God, and we honor God by recognizing that and being generous to the people and the causes in the world that honor him. And if we have more than we need, the question is not, how do I, how do I make more space for all the stuff that I have? It's, it's, how do I manage this well? How can I be a good steward? And that's a, that's a hard question. How much is enough? How much is enough? My wife is a financial planner, and this is one of the first questions she always asks people, especially people who are really wealthy. How much is enough? Where, where would you draw the line to say, this is enough? Because we can be really critical about the Jeff Bezos of the world. Like, oh, he doesn't need $200 billion. But let's be honest, most of us in this room, by the world's standards, we're not Jeff Bezos, we're pretty well off. So what's the excess for? How much is enough? I want to go back to the verse in Proverbs, and I want to point out something that I found, and we'll wrap up here in just a second. But when I went back to this verse, I discovered within the language of the verse an incredible insight that's really helpful. Look at verse 10. It says, Then your barns will be filled the NIV translates it as overflowing, but when I read it in our little Proverbs journal, it's the ESV translation, and it actually says with plenty. And I feel like the difference in those two was, was striking, so I went and did a little bit of digging, and the Hebrew word has, it can be translated as abundance. This is the only place it gets, gets translated in the NIV as overflowing, which is interesting. I don't know why they chose to do that, but it has a sense of enough. Then your barns will be filled with enough. So put those two verses together. Honor God with your wealth, and then your barns will be filled with enough. Isn't this getting to a little bit of the heart of greed? Will I have enough? I don't know if I, need, if I can be generous because I might need that, right? There's fear underneath that. Fear that, that I might not have enough for tomorrow, so I can't be generous today which is the whole point. This is what God is after. God is not after our money. God doesn't need our money. God wants our heart. God wants us to see that there is freedom when we're not tied, when we're not a slave to the fear of not having enough. We just sang about this. Adam just led us in a song and said, we're no longer slaves to fear. Is that true? If it's true, are we being generous with our money in a way that says, I don't have to be afraid. I can give first to the people and to the causes and the needs of this world and trust that I'll have enough. 
Not in a reckless way, not in a stupid way, but in a way that says, I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live with the mindset of greed. So that's the question I want to leave you with today. How much is enough? And there's not one answer to that question. It's a question all of us have to wrestle with. But I'll tell you, the voice inside of you that's driven by greed is the voice that says, just a little bit more. A little bit more will be enough. A little bit more will be enough. Because there will never be an end to that. Your next promotion, your next, next pay increase, the next bigger house, the next nicer car, it will never be enough. And the only way that we break that is to be rich towards God and towards the people that he loves, to be generous, to give generously, to love God and to love others by giving from what we've been given. I believe that this verse is an invitation to consider whether we're living a life of greed or living a life of generosity. Let's pray as we close today that God would help us make an honest assessment of where we are in that process. Let's pray. God, um, as we come to this, we, we do confess that there's, a, there's nothing like money and finances to create anxiety and tension inside of us of um, have we done enough? Are we doing enough? <clears throat> and I just pray that you would give us a sense of, of freedom and groundedness and your love for us regardless of where we are in this process. That your love for us is not predicated on how much we give away or how generous we are or how greedy we are. You love us right where we are. And in the midst of that, you meet us and you call us to the freedom, the freedom that comes from being willing to trust you with all of our lives, including our finances, to be generous to the people and the causes and the needs in our world that move and motivate your heart, God. So I pray that you would help us to make an honest, unflinching assessment of where we are with that. Are we being generous with our finances? Or are we holding on out of fear? Give us great wisdom and clarity to be able to know the, the path, the steps to take, and then God give us the courage to be able to walk that path. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.